You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CibeloCreek.com. You guys in a good mood today? Yes. Oh, you are? Oh, good. I need that. Because the honest truth is I'm a little nervous. I'm a little more nervous than usual. I mean, there's always sort of your public speaking anxieties. Like you hope that you've prepared well enough to be able to explain yourself clearly. Uh, you're always aware of guests in the room who are visiting your church for the first time, and, and you recognize that the message has a, a pretty significant bearing on their first impression and whether they'll ever come back or not. So you get that pressure. Um, you're always worried about, as a public speaker, you're always worried about, you know, kind of getting caught up in the moment and end up butchering a word or a sentence and saying something really embarrassing. Or, you know, just typical anxieties like is your fly up and any kind of wardrobe malfunctions. Okay, so there's that. But then, like today's a little bit different because some topics are particularly sensitive. Some are even volatile. There's a lot of passion, a lot of differing opinions and ideas about certain topics of our day. And today we're, we're going to wade into a couple of those. And I want you to trust my heart that as a pastor and as a shepherd of a church community, I, I have a responsibility before God to speak honestly about things as as I understand them from the scriptures and as I understand them from the world in which we live. So, we'll just begin there. So, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of redemptive community. The idea that the church, not the building and the stained glass and the steeples, but the people, a gathering of people who share faith in Jesus Christ, the church was ordained by God to be a place where redemption happens, restoration happens, redemptive community, and God intended to use and to be at work through that community. God intended to use the gospel of Jesus the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and what it offers to human beings by way of forgiveness and grace and mercy and salvation and freedom from the power of sin and the, the hope of change, that God would use the power of the gospel to restore what was ruined and what is ruined by sin. And last week we talked a little bit about the nature of sin. And one of the things that I was sharing with you is that sin has a powerful impact on our lives. And, and here's how sin behaves. At times sin confuses. The Bible actually talks about sin blinding the mind that it is unable to comprehend the truths of God. It makes us um, deaf to what it is that God wants us to say. It, it ends up confusing what people believe to be true or, or not. And sin complicates whatever God designed to work in a, in a perfect, in a, in a healthy fashion. When sin gets its fingers in it, it will complicate. It complicates marriage. It complicates relationships. It complicates money. 
Sin contaminates. Again, whatever sin gets into, it can hurt it and destroy it and damage it. God, God created sexual intimacy to be a beautiful expression of wholeness between a man and a woman who are united together in marriage. But sin will get it in there and contaminate that relationship. Sin corrupts. In other words, it has a devastating impact upon our entire lives. And, and I know sin isn't necessarily a very popular topic, but we have to be honest to it. We have to be honest to it. And what we have to be honest to is the fact is that sin, it complicates everything it touches, including me and my life, and including you and your life. It touches all of us. We good? Okay, so here's what happens. When you take, you take us who've been confused and complicated and compromised and corrupted by sin and its impact on our life, and you take a bunch of us, oh, say like a few million here and a few million there, what you have is a society. A society is a group of people who share something in common, experiences and traditions and institutions. And, I mean, we can talk in terms of, like, the American society. We all share some things in common. I mean, just think about the things that we all share in common as Americans. Uh, television shows and movies, written and digital media, social media, news. We, we share politics. We share government. We share laws, we share citizenship and the discussion about it. We, we share holidays and we share historical milestones. We share a, a history together. We, we share entertainment, restaurants, music, sports, recreation. We, we share all those things in common as a society. True? Okay, so if, if a society is made up of people, and people have been confused and complicated and contaminated by the impact of sin, then it's not difficult to understand and recognize that sin has had an incredible impact on society as a whole. Did, did you follow that? Okay, so people in a society can be confused by sin. People in a society can be corrupted by sin and its impact. Because some of the people that live in a society who are corrupted and confused by sin, guess what? They write music. And they make films. And they produce television shows. And so it's not hard to understand that a society has been impacted by sin. Sin has had an enormous impact on society. Now, I learned a lesson a few months ago in another series of messages that we did that was sort of sensitive. Um, people only hear me in extremes. If I say this one thing, but I don't say this other thing, then they make assumptions about the other thing and where I stand on it. So let me be really, really clear. <laughs> Paying attention? That yes, 
I am not saying that everything in society is evil because there are plenty of shining examples in our society of things that are good and wholesome and right and just. Our society is full of beacons of light reflecting love and compassion and justice and beauty and all sorts of expressions all around us. Did you hear me say that? What I'm saying is that we live in a society where all that is good and right and just is in a battle against all that is evil. We are in a fight for our life between good and evil, right and wrong, just and unjust. And we would only be naive to deny that. We don't have to look very far to see the tension between right and wrong, good and evil in our society. And if we choose to put our heads in the sand, what we fail to see is the coming tsunami that's going to crash on our shore because we didn't want to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Jesus talked about it all the time. I mean, look at, look at what's happening in our society. Is that everything about our society? No, but this is happening. And how do you explain that? How do you explain the evidence of these sorts of things happening in our society other than the fact that society has been impacted by sin and sin has created confusion and complications and contamination and corruption because this exists in our society. That's why, that is why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. What did Jesus understand? Is that the church, the community of faith that he was going to gather together, it was going to be a part of a world, a culture, a society, and hell was using society who's been corrupted by sin to wage war against everything that Christ stood for. He understood that hell was going to throw everything at everything that Jesus was about through his church. I mean, folks, when you study the scriptures, you can't miss the theme of light and darkness. Light stands for all that is good and right and true and wholesome and pure. And darkness stands for everything the opposite of that. Everything that's immoral, everything that's improper, everything that's unwholesome, everything that's a lie and deceptive. And we see all through the scriptures the battle between light and darkness. And what the scriptures are telling us is that darkness is a very powerful force in our world and light stands against it. Jesus said this in the scriptures, he says, you are the salt of the earth. What was that about? He's talking about salt in terms of holding back decay and meat. He's talking about the fact that we as Christ followers, we stand as salt in our community, in our society to hold back decay, to hold back and protect against social decay that's happening in our world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about a world that can be very, very dark. You as Christ followers standing for what is right and good and wholesome and pure, you are some sort of beacon of hope, some sort of light in a world that's dark. And what you have to understand is that we as light, we hold back the advance of darkness. 
I mean, look at the tensions that we are living in right now in our world. We're talking about justice versus unjust, injustice. We're talking about integrity versus corruption, purity versus immorality, equality versus discrimination, unity versus division, love versus hate, freedom versus tyranny. These are very real expressions of what's happening in our society. You've probably heard this quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men and good women do nothing, say nothing. And if the church was to be listed among anybody, we were to be among the good who speak up and rise up and push back on the forces of sin in the darkness of our society. That is part of what it is to be the church. And so this morning, we're gonna look at one of the ways that sin loves to divide along social lines. And we're seeing it all throughout our society, race, gender, and class. And you know what? We shouldn't be the least bit surprised that these things have reared their ugly head in our society because of the confusion and the corruptive nature of sin, because these sorts of things have existed since the time the scriptures were even written. I mean, stop to consider that the entire Old Testament and New Testament are written against the backdrop of rampant social darkness and decay. I mean, just think about it the biblical history of the nation of Israel. The Jews, from Genesis to Revelation, Exodus to Revelation, the Jews have lived in either captivity, slavery, or exile to another superpower. The Egyptians, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, eventually the Romans. That's discrimination. That's racial tension that the entire Bible exists in. You look at the scriptures and women. Women are always portrayed in the scriptures, almost always portrayed socially as being inferior. They were to be seen and not heard. They were to be used, but not of any use. They were, to be, they were chattel. They were possessions to be sold and traded at times. That's the backdrop of women in society of the scriptures. Jews and Gentiles absolutely hated each other. That's the entire backdrop of the New Testament. Society was largely the, the upper class, the rulers, and the ruled. The Bible's told against the backdrop of the story of rich versus poor. I mean, you just come to like book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the apostle Paul giving instructions about how communion was to be observed in church. Guess what the problem is? Racial tension. Rich and poor, classism, active in the church at, uh, at Corinth that had corrupted the expression of communion among one another. So we see it all through scripture. In fact, here, here's a perfect example of if you have your Bibles and uh, you found the book of James, turn with me to James chapter two. This just show you that this is the context of the society in which the scripture was written. I'm not just making this up 
okay? The New Testament authors in several occasions, they had to write very directly to the issue of race, gender, and class and the problems of the corruption of sin in their society. James chapter two. Verse one, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show what? That's a nice and kind way of saying discrimination. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man, he comes into your meeting in shabby clothes, and he also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, sir. But you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over here. Here, you sit on the floor by my feet, which is a very discriminatory sort of um, conduct. Have you not discriminated against among yourselves and you've become judges of other people with either evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Yes. Have you insulted the poor? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong to, i.e. Jesus? If you really keep the royal law found in the scriptures of love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But listen to this. If you show favoritism, if you show discrimination, you sin And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet they stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. For he who said, do not commit adultery and do not commit murder, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've broken the whole law. You've become a lawbreaker. So we, we see this sort of tension in the early church and it had to be addressed. You ready? Is it any different today? Look at the list of things that are getting a whole lot of traffic nowadays. Diversity, quality, inclusion. I mean, companies literally hiring people now who just oversee diversity, equality, inclusion in their corporations. Universities now have appointed positions on their faculty who just oversee companies paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring in consultants to educate the employees about diversity, equality, inclusion. It's a very, very hot topic of our day. Critical race theory, the whole discussion of white supremacy, gender identity, Racism, sexism, classism, this is just rampant. And here's the issue, or here's the tension. It's suggested that the preacher not talk about them. It's it's suggested that the preacher not talk about them because they're sensitive and they're touchy, and there's very diverging opinions and perspective on issues like this. So why don't you just avoid them? Because if, if you talk 
about them too much, then people will get their feelings hurt and, and they might feel offended and they might not come back to the church. And, and, and here's how this is often couched. Paul, those issues, all the social issues, they're all political. And we shouldn't talk about politics at church. Because politics, you know, it's, it's divisive. People land on different sides of the aisle. So we shouldn't talk about political things. We don't want our church to be political. And you know what? I don't want our church to be political. But here's, here's, here's my concern, is that all these great social issues of our day, they're not political. They've been politicized. And there's a big difference. Politicians have taken the great social issues of our day and they've used them to manipulate and intimidate, to raise money, to garner votes, to campaign, to push agendas and ideologies and to pass laws. But what we have to understand is that they are not political issues. They are moral issues. And if an issue is moral, then it is spiritual. There is some dynamic of good versus evil at work in that particular social issue because it is moral at its core. And if it's moral, it's eternal. It has eternal implications about where somebody lands and what they believe about the certain social issues and what they affirm and applaud and accept as a social issue and where they stand in it, particularly as it relates to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Does that make sense? Will you stay a few more minutes? So I, I wrestled with this message and what direction to go with it, and I decided, okay, just the wisest direction to go with it is this. Start with Jesus. Just start with Jesus. So let's look at an honest look at Jesus. Jesus, who we believe as Christians is God, come to earth. And where did he come? He came to Bethlehem. He was born in a stable. Have you ever considered why? Because of racism and classism. You see, Jesus' parents were from Galilee, but Jews lived in subservience to the Roman Empire, and the Roman emperor had passed an edict that all the Jews were to go to the place of their birth so that they could participate in a census and they could pay a tax. That was way of the Roman emperor in numbering the number of people who were a part of the servitude of the Jews. Huge class discrimination. Think about Jesus. He was rebuked, like literally scolded because he hung out with the lepers and the deaf and the blind and the mute and the crippled. He, he, he sort of ran with the irreligious and the immoral. People didn't like who Jesus hung out with. You talk about uh, Jesus and uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. What is that about? It's about the backdrop of racism. Jesus tells a parable about a story of a man who's been um, beat up and left to die along the side of a road and Jews and Jewish leaders come along and they pass on the other side of that man, but it was a Samaritan. You know anything about Samaritans? Samaritans were half-breeds. They were a mixed Jewish race. 
and they weren't liked. They weren't appreciated. They weren't accepted as a part of society. They were actually sequestered in their own little towns. And it was the Samaritan who did the right thing. Jesus, in fact, one time on a journey, he stops at a well in Samaria, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And when he asks her to give him a drink of the water that she's drawing out of the well, she says, wait a second, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. When his disciples later return to that situation from getting food in town, they come back and they say to Jesus, hey, why are you talking to that woman? She's female and she's a Samaritan because of racial and gender discriminations of the time that Jesus walked the earth. And he walked into all of that. Jesus, he talked about a kingdom. And in his kingdom, who would be the first? It would be the slave The servant would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The first would be last, and the last would be first. In other words, the class, the upper class, they they will be the last in Jesus' kingdom, but the lowest in a society will be the first. Jesus blesses the meek and the lowly, the servant, the poor, the outcast of society. This is the nature of the life and society that Jesus walked into. It's interesting. Women were the very first ones to carry the news of the gospel, not men. Jesus talked about the meek will inherit the earth, the poor will triumph. And of all the observations that we could make about Jesus' life, and literally there'd be dozens of observations that we could make just from his interaction with the society in which he lived, there's one that we can start, it's the most basic, and it's this, that Jesus sees the world quite a bit differently than we do. Jesus sees the world quite a bit differently than we do. He thought of the people that he encountered very differently than most of the time that we encounter people in our society. He saw things, he heard things, he felt things very differently than we typically do. And there's a lot to be learned from that. Look at this passage of scripture. This is how Jesus saw his society. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages encountering his society. He was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, large groups of people, he had compassion on them because here's what he saw. They were harassed and helpless because sin confuses and sin contaminates and sin corrupts. He saw because them with compassion because they were harassed and helpless. They were, they were like sheep going through life without a shepherd to take care of them. So let me ask us the question, me included, do we see our world with that sort of compassion? Do we look at our world with that kind of concern? When you go to an event at your child's school, do you see that crowd with compassion? Are you just annoyed that you had a hard time finding a parking space? When you go to a concert or watch a movie, do you look around and are you moved with compassion about the concern of the people that you see? Are you just mad that somebody's in your view? You see, Jesus had a different way of looking at his world. And we, 
as Christ followers, we need to start looking at our world through the eyes of Jesus because it changes our perspective. We, we would see things that often don't get much attention. We, we would hear things different than everybody else amidst all the noise. We, we would feel things. We would feel things amidst all the other confusion that has hardened the hearts of most other people if we have the heart of Jesus. The backdrop of the New Testament is Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, they despised each other. The Jews, they saw themselves as having a spiritual superiority because they were the people of God. And the Gentiles, they saw themselves as the intellectual elite. The Jews, they looked at the Gentiles as pagans. And the Gentiles looked at Jews as idiots. They had nothing to do with each other. In fact, in the Jewish faith, if you went to the marketplace and you were trading with somebody who happened to be a Gentile and your hands touched as you exchanged money, that Jew now understood himself as being unholy in the sight of God, contaminated by Gentile. And he had to go home and conduct a very sacred ritual bath to get the Gentile off of him. A lot of racial tension a lot of class discrimination. And then in walks Jesus. And he talks about things like love and compassion and forgiveness and humility and acceptance and oneness or unity. And then he goes to a cross and he dies and he pays for the penalty of sin and its grip on the human soul. And then he starts talking about this thing called the church. The church, this gathering of people from all walks of life, all different genders, all different expressions of, of, um, of wealth and poverty, and they would come together and they would be a family, brothers and sisters in relationship to one another, and Jews and Gentiles are hearing this for the very first time and they're going, what? I'm supposed to see him as my brother? I'm supposed to accept her as my sister? It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy in the first century. But the church was chosen by God to be a redemptive community where the power and work of sin could be destroyed. The gospel went to both Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, and it changed the way that they were supposed to relate to one another. And so we read... But now in Christ, you who are Jews, you are in Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you Gentiles who had nothing to do with God's promises to the nation of Israel. Now those of you who are once far away, you have been brought near by the work of Jesus on the cross, the gospel for he himself, Jesus, is our peace between these two groups of people. He has made these two groups what? One. And he has destroyed the barrier. And what was the barrier? The dividing wall of hostility, the sin that confuses through hatred, the sin that contaminates through discrimination. 
the sin that corrupts through racism. His purpose, the purpose of Jesus was to create in himself one new way of going about being human, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in that one body, Jews and Gentiles coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ to reconcile both of them to God, how through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, Gentiles, you're no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers in the equation, but now you are fellow citizens with God's people and you are members of his what? His household, that means your brothers and sisters live like it. So, you still with me? There's this one passage in the New Testament that I believe best embodies the spirit of a redemptive community better than any other passage of scripture in the New Testament. And there's a few. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three, find verse 26. You ready? Okay, now listen, listen to this. You are all children of God. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lord, for all of you who were baptized or united, not this is not about water baptism here. This is about the union of faith. You were all united into Christ Jesus. You've clothed yourselves with Jesus. In other words, Christians, you ought to look different, see different, feel different, be different because you dress up in something completely contrary to all that we see in society. You, you clothe yourselves with Christ in his compassion, his humility, his love, his grace, his mercy. Now watch this, you ready? No, you ready? Look at this. There in the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's, there's, neither, there's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. That's what a redemptive community feels like. That's what a redemptive community acts like. That's what a redemptive community looks at each other like. You see, we say there's no Jew nor Gentile. This isn't about the social distinctions of race anymore. This is about being humans who've been captured by the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, there's no male or female. This, this isn't about gender anymore and all the social discriminations that fall along those lines. He said, this isn't about slave nor free. There's no more class in the body of Christ, the church. That stuff doesn't work here. But you say, wait, 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 but, but, but Paul, Paul, there is Jews and there are Gentiles. And there's blacks, and there's Asians, and there are Hispanics, right, right. And, and there, is, there is male, and there is female, you're right. 
And Paul, the honest truth is that some of us have more than others. There are rich and there are poor, yes, but in the community of Jesus, there's no stereotypes allowed. There's no stigmas permitted. There's no social agendas advanced. All of that stuff disappears because we're one in Christ. We approach a redemptive community in the hopes of God restoring us to a humble and noble recognition of our divine creation as human beings where race and color and gender and station in life don't matter anymore. We see it differently. Typical social discriminations have no place in the church. Does that make sense? so much I want to share. This last, last thing I want to share is something I wrote. I decided to read exactly what I wrote so I don't confuse. You ready? Whatever discrimination any race may experience in society, they ought not to experience that in the church. Did you get that? Whatever stereotyping that either gender may experience in society, they not, ought not to experience that in the church. Whatever prejudice toward any social class may experience in society, they ought not to experience that in the church. Somebody of a different color, they ought to be embraced for their unique beauty, admired for their enormous cultural contribution, and honored for their esteemed place in our community as noble bearers of the image of God. A church of many races is glory to God who created all human beings and endowed them with the soul of eternal worth to their creator. Jesus died for each and every race, every color of skin, every cultural identity. None, none have any more worth than another as all have the same eternal value as worthy of Christ's death to redeem them for an eternity. That's how we see each other. Women. Women ought to find the freedom, the honor, the affirmation, and empowerment in the church that they struggle to find in society. Recognized, respected, and appreciated for their unique, God-given qualities and the feminine spirit that they and they alone possess for which the body of Christ, the church, is less if denied and enriched if truly set free. Men. Men ought to find in the church the safety approval and purpose society seeks to rob from them in its relentless expectations to be defined by their success, their wealth, and their performance against the relentless onslaught of competition. Men ought to be celebrated for their unique masculine qualities without shame as entrusted to them by their creator to provide, to protect, and to lead from a place of compassionate and humble strength. 
different life experiences from both ends of the spectrum economically, intellectually, and socially are cherished for what they all bring to the table of knowledge and talent and what each has to teach to the other about humility and compassion and generosity and courage and unselfishness as we endeavor to celebrate each other as human beings created in the image of God for whom Jesus thought it was worth dying for. That is the church that Jesus said he would build. My question to us is will we let him build it here? And I for one say, yes, we will. Make sense? Ask you to stand together. And we can talk more about this Thursday night if you're interested. COVID's made everybody weird. So we're afraid to hold hands anymore. Look at this. You guys don't even know each other, do you? Hold hands if you're comfortable. And just, I'm seriously, if, if somebody said, no, I'd rather not, just respect that. If you don't want to hold hands, just put your hands up. And let's pray. God. The gospel invades a society that's been confused and corrupted by sin. And your dream for the church is that people could be restored back to your original design of all that is good and right and healthy and wholesome here in your presence through the work of your spirit and the power of the gospel. God, I can't pastor every church. I can just pastor this one. And I ask you to give me the wisdom, the discernment, and the courage to pastor this one well, to be a faithful expression of all that you had hoped for, to be embodied in your church, where race doesn't exist, except in the beauty that it brings to enrich our congregation. Gender stereotypes, they don't exist here. Women and men are free free to serve you in their gifts and their calling and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life in whatever capacity. And a class that this church would demolish the distinctions between rich and poor, elite and average. May this community here be something extraordinary as we seek to be a redemptive community in your sight. I pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.